All right, and welcome to another episode of the Lions Guide podcast, where we take on topics in performance and personal growth by exploring the success stories of our guests and the lessons they've learned. I interview other subject matter experts on topics of performance and growth and also review books and other resources to help us all establish clarity, build courage, and lead. I'm your host, Dale Walls, founder of Lions Guide. And on this episode, I've got Mr. John McCaskill. And uh, John's a retired Navy SEAL commander turned consultant and mindfulness and meditation teacher. Uh, he's got a podcast out there now called uh, Men Talking Mindfulness. And, and he also does a lot of keynote speaking and engagements around developing leadership, grit, and resilience. So on this episode, John and I talk about his journey through the Naval Academy and then on to becoming a Naval, Navy SEAL. Uh, we talk about his leadership lessons and a lot about John's experience in adopting mindfulness and meditation as a part of his high-performance tool set and how it's benefited him in doing so. So before we get started, if you like the sound of that, hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss any of our other great guests and content. And as always, this podcast is sponsored by Lions Guide. And if you've been tuning in, getting value from the show, then do yourself a favor and go out to lionsguide.com and join our member community called The Pride. For no cost to you, it's free. You get access to all kinds of free exclusive content to include yet to be released episodes of this podcast. I post reading lists. I do live virtual training events on various topics in high performance. Uh, I've got a private online group to engage with other growth-minded members like yourself and, and a whole lot more. So again, joining the Pride is free and I'm developing all that to help you break out of your rut and or break through to that next best version of yourself by establishing clarity, building your courage, and being the true leader of your life. So go out there, check it out now, and go to lionsguide.com and join today. Hope to see you online. With that said, let's start the show. guys and welcome back to another episode of the Lions Guy Podcast and on today's episode we've got Mr. John McCaskill. Did I get it right? You nailed it? You got it man. (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) Retired Navy SEAL commander turned consultant in mindfulness and meditation teacher. Uh, He now runs a podcast called Men Talking Mindfulness and does keynote speaking engagements on developing leadership, uh, grit and resilience. John welcome to the show man. Hey Dale thanks for having me man. I'm excited to be here and excited for the conversation. Yeah definitely. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what do you do? Yeah, sure. Uh, So now I'm teaching mindfulness and meditation, like you said, but prior in a former life, (laughs) I was a I was a Navy SEAL commander, uh, not not my entire career, but I worked my way up to Navy SEAL commander, served in the Navy for 24 years, 17 of which was connected to special operations in some capacity and uh, did seven combat deployments, did uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, all the great places that we see about, <laughs> read about in the news, uh, you know, these great resort locations. But uh, anyway, did, did those and, uh, and then got introduced to mindfulness and meditation in, in the latter quarter of my career. And we'll get into this here shortly in the show, but um, that I feel really helped to change my performance, but also helped to uh, deal with some anxiety and some stress and depression that I was dealing with. And it allowed me to process that and get through it. And now I feel it's kind of an obligation of mine to pay it forward and share mindfulness and meditation with whoever will listen. That's why we have the podcast, Men Talking Mindfulness. And that's why I do it as a living because Men Talking Mindfulness is definitely not a living, right? <laughs> podcast is, is a tough, tough place to make a living, but um, it's definitely just a, a platform to share these uh, these life changing and what I consider life saving practices. 
Yeah, I agree. Like we talked about before the show and even before that, like I'm learning it. And that's why I'm excited for you to be on today because I'm still it's one of those things that it's not tangible. So like a lot of my questions end up being around like, am I doing it right? And you know, whatever, like, you know, because, you, you know, it's hard to explain to people like what you're experiencing. Right. So it's something I'm, I'm ex- excited to jump into. But, you know, tell us, like, what's your background? Like what a little bit about the Navy? So what was it? 24 years total that you did? Yeah, twenty four years. Yeah. Now, what what inspired yes. you to join? Was it a family thing or? Yeah, um, no. Ironically, uh, it was not a family thing. As a matter of fact, uh, I was born in South Africa um, and moved to the states when I was seven. And one of the reasons we left South Africa, aside from the apartheid and you know some of the things that were going on there in the early eighties that we didn't agree with. Um, my father didn't want me to be drafted into the South African military, which at the time, um, when you graduated high school, conscription was still a thing. And so we left South Africa. And I, now I joke with my dad, hey, we left South Africa so I could avoid the draft. And I came over here and voluntarily joined the U.S. military. Um, and at, at 18, so I was 18, senior year in high school, I went and joined the delayed enlistment program. And my dad was like, hey, you need to go back tomorrow and and change that paperwork. I was like, well, you know, I'm 18. I signed it. Uh, I'm joining the, the military. And he was upset with me taking that, making that decision on my own and just going out kind of against his his will. But now he's very proud of who I became and what the military did for me. But yeah, it was definitely not a family thing to answer that question. But where it came from was in high school, I was part of a very small, tight-knit group of runners, uh, track and cross-country team. We did everything together, absolutely everything, I mean, to include the running. <laughs> and uh, and we were very effective. Uh, state champions had some of the All-Americans all on the teams. And I felt, okay, you know what? When I get out of the military, I want to be part of a small – or sorry, when I get out of high school, I want to be part of a small, tight-knit group of folks – working towards a common goal. And so, you know, the military jumped out at me, first of all, hey, we're all working towards a common goal of serving and protecting and serving the country. Um, And that definitely appealed to me. I was raised in north central Louisiana and I was a patriot. And and so that the military appealed to me, but then the tight-knit, small group, special operations kind of bubbled to the surface. And then specifically the SEALs, because I would spend our summers um, lifeguarding or at the ocean, and I was like, you know what, I want to, I want to be near the water and doing something in and on the water, and so the seals bubbled to the surface even more, with no pun intended there, but um, <laughs> yeah, so there it was, seals, special operations, and the military. So, like junior year in high school, uh, I decided, you know, I want to go to the Naval Academy specifically to become a seal officer. Um, senior year applied, uh, got denied. That's why I ended up going into the, the enlisted enlisted route. Started uh, enlisted as a parachute rigger, and then got picked up from the enlisted ranks for the Naval Academy, and then uh, and then went into the the SEALs from there. So, yeah, that's pretty impressive because I know it's it's hard to get into the academy as it is. So you went, but what I like even more so because I, I you wanted to be a SEAL, like in high school. It, it wasn't that yeah. something that you joined an Navy and came about. It was you wanted to be right. a SEAL. Right. Exactly. Yes. Uh, I decided 
probably early on junior year that I wanted to be a SEAL. And then I wanted, then I was like, okay, I want to be a SEAL officer. Um, that the, And that route for me was the Naval Academy. There's many other routes to get there. But for me, I was like, okay, I want to go to the Naval Academy. And then got turned down there and, and was like, okay, I still want to be a SEAL, whether it's an officer or not. So I'm going to enlist. Now, I did not go through SEAL training as an enlisted guy. I went through SEAL training after the Naval Academy. But there are guys who go through SEAL training as enlisted and then get picked up to go to the Naval Academy. So they'll go through the Naval Academy with their trident on and, you know, their upperclassmen are yelling at them and they're just laughing in the back of their minds like, okay, yeah, this is a joke. But (laughs) yeah. So so but you got denied going to the Naval Academy first or SEALs out of high school? I got denied. So, no, I got denied uh, out of high school going to the Naval Academy. Okay. Then I enlisted, put in a packet to go to Bud's training as an as an enlisted man um, and then got got picked up uh, for the Naval Academy prior to ever getting into SEAL training Bud's as an enlisted guy. So how long were you enlisted before you got picked up to go to the academy? Uh, just a year, just shy okay. of a year, actually. Yeah. So there's a, I forget, and the numbers are probably wrong now. This is, this is in 1997. Uh, but there were, I want to say like 35 slots directly from the Marine Corps and direct and 35 directly from the Navy into the Naval Academy. And then there's some that, you know, if they don't get it directly into the Naval Academy, they'll go to the Naval Academy preparatory school in Rhode Island. And, uh, I, I got, a a uh, secretary of the Navy nomination and got directly in. Um, and it worked out because, you know, I'd, I'd only been out in the Navy and out of schooling, out of education, formal education for a year. If I'd been out much longer than that, I, I definitely would have needed to go to the prep school, but I didn't go. So. Yeah, yeah no, that's out. awesome. So, um, and you had put in for SEALs, which you went into the Academy at first. So what you did was a four at the Academy, four years. Yeah, four years. Yeah, it's just a re- basically a regular college. <laughs> you just wear a uniform and you march around and you're, you're basically uh, a midshipman. But yeah, it's uh, it's very similar to a regular college as far as time-wise. Right. And with regard to uh, yeah. the SEALs aspect of the sequence, because I know you're, cause you're going to the academy for a specific job as well. And were you like going through the academy with the intention and destination of being a SEAL officer? Was it something different? Yeah. So that was my intention. Um, I honestly didn't realize just kind of what the risk I put that intention at by going to the Naval Academy. Because at the time uh, and the years just ahead of me and for a few years after I graduated, they were only selecting 16 guys from every graduating class to go out to, to BUDS, which is the mm-hmm. SEAL training, basic underwater demolition SEAL training. Um, and that's out of about, you know, a, a class of a thousand out of that class of a thousand. There's about freshman year. There's probably a good hundred, maybe 150 guys who want to go. And by senior year, that's been whittled down to about 50 mm-hmm. and to get selected you know, out of that 50 to be part of that 16 that actually go, it's pretty, pretty rigorous to get to be selected. So I don't, I could have gone enlisted and gone buds and gone that route, which probably would have been a better chance of becoming a SEAL. And when I arrived at the Naval Academy, I very much questioned myself, hey, why did I do this? Uh, you know, I put my chance of becoming a SEAL at, at risk. And, uh, you know, 
higher being had something to do with my actually getting selected. So, uh, yeah, I got selected and then went out to, went, went out to seal training as one of 16 from, from the class of 2001. Yeah. Awesome. That's, that's a, that's quite the journey in the path. Um, because you know, just the, the barriers of entry in both those things, man, you're like, you're like squeaking through getting in there through the Academy and all that. I mean, getting into the Academy. And then, like you said, I didn't, I didn't realize, you know, some of these, um, quotas if you will on how many were coming in to the academy and then the yeah. seals from the academy that's interesting yeah yeah there's definitely uh there is a very small barrier to entry and i think i i just slipped through the cracks and <laughs> honestly when i looked at my classmates that i was surrounded by i was like because i you know i'd done well in high school but it was a small school so i was this big fish in a small pond and then i got to the naval academy and i realized pretty quickly that i was uh swimming outside of my own uh strengths and oh, yeah. capabilities and yeah i i rose to the occasionally luck luckily but holy cow I, I felt my i felt overwhelmed pretty quickly oh yeah oh yeah top notch i yeah. mean because i'm here in maryland i don't know if we talked about that before but i'm, I'm yeah. right here and yeah we go um we usually Eastern go out shore, on the right? bay and watch yeah i'm on the shore and um we got to the yeah. bay and watch the um at the graduation because the uh, blue angels come blue through angels and, like, the annual thing yeah man yeah, that's, yeah. Awesome. that's awesome. See all the see all yeah, the ladies I'm, I'm living out here in town yeah. back in the day. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so I'm living in Colorado Springs now. So I'm in enemy territory, the Air Force Academy right here in my backyard. And I saw the Thunderbirds this past year, and you know I see the the Air Force Academy cadets out at the mall or out in town. And I was like, oh, so this is what it's like from the other side. But yeah, yep. I love it. So when it came to buds, uh, how'd you, how'd you make out? Uh, I did uh, really well at shooting. I did really well at running and did really well at swimming. Uh, but the obstacle course I'm, I'm tall and lanky and the obstacle course was my nemesis. Uh, I struggled with that. And I tell you, if you struggle at anything, the instructors see it really quickly and they are like sharks to blood, man. Um, so they, they saw that I struggled and they definitely tried to get me to quit um, on on day one, basically, because I sucked at the obstacle course. But I got better um, and, and got to pass, you know, through the different phases. So Buds is divided into three phases and each phase, the time, acceptable time decreases. So you have to get faster and faster. So I got faster and faster and was able to, to get through. Uh, but, yeah, I, I did well at everything but the but that damn obstacle course. Um, and then, uh, and then hell week, you know, the infamous hell week that we've all seen on the discovery channel and, and everything else. Uh, I was pulled out a couple times for med checks cause I was, I was coughing up along, uh, and luckily didn't get, uh, didn't get pulled out and was able to finish, uh, the, the, the hell week with the class that I started, but tons of folks will start hell week, you know, in two or three days in, they'll get pulled out and recycled and have to start training day one, week one. And then have to do hell week all over again. And that was a nightmare uh, possibility for me. And luckily I dodged that bullet and was able to get through with the class that I started. I, I will take that back. I started with, I started buds with class two, three, eight day one. Uh, I got rolled for pneumonia, but I consider my class two, three, nine. That's the subsequent class um, because I, I didn't even make it through 12 hours of training with two, three, eight. So I was like, okay. 239 is my class. I started with 239, finished with 239, made it through Hell Week with 239. That's that's my class. <laughs> how, how, how do you start day one with freaking pneumonia? 
Yeah. So, uh, stupidity, honestly, uh, I had gone out to San Diego. I'd been living in Annapolis the whole time. San Diego was a party town. I was, uh, going out, uh, even prior to day one at, at Bud's, you do what's called PTRR. I think it stands for pre-training rest and recuperation. I forget exactly, but it's, it's like the pre-phase. So we, we were doing physical training and then I was going out with, with buddies, uh, staying out late at night, drinking, acting a fool. Um, and my body uh, paid the price for it. So I started day one and I was coughing up along blood, spitting up blood and I uh, got rolled back to the next class. So, yeah. <laughs> Stupidity. <laughs> of course. I mean, it's, hard, it's hard not to down there, man. Uh, you know, I was yeah. stationed there at Pendleton in the Marines, man. It's just, there's just too much there. You know, you're but yep. from Pendleton, right? We're 40 minutes from um, Los Angeles, LA or 30 minutes to San Diego. Yeah. I mean, you're, it's just too much going on right there for, <laughs> for young guys first time from home. So, yeah. uh, but with how did, how did you fare? Did you feel like buds that, how was it compared to what you expected it to be? Mm. Oh, that's a great question. I've never been asked that. Um, so it was grueling, uh, and, but I expected that, right? Um, but in all honesty, it was, it was a lot more fun than I had anticipated. I, I thought it was going to be six months, you know, head down, just grinding away the whole time. And it was that. But you're going through this misery with, with brothers, and there's times that you just look up and you're like, what the hell are we doing here? You know, this, this is miserable, but you, you see miserable in the faces of those right next to you and misery in the faces of those right next to you. And you just laugh. You have to. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, if I if if my body was capable to go through it again, I mean, I'm 44 now, so I'm most likely not capable. But uh, but I would do it again in a heartbeat because it was so much fun looking back on it. And I think that's what I did not anticipate. So that's yeah, do you how think it the, differed. How do you think the, do you think the Academy helped prepare you for buds, maybe more so than not going oh, through it? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So the, the Naval Academy guys that go to buds, they, they have a leg up. Uh, and, and that's not me just being biased saying, Hey, I, I'm Naval Academy. So all the Naval Academy guys are great because we're not, I fully admit we're not all great, but what the Naval Academy does is there's three classes ahead of you at the Naval Academy that you get to see going out to buds and you start making contact with those guys and you start, you know, getting all the little secrets and hacks of how to get through training or what you need to do, what kind of workouts you need to do. Um, and then you start bonding with your own class from the Naval Academy with the guys from that class who want to go. So, you know, we, there were 16 guys. I knew all 16 of them that were going to go out there with me. And we were already brothers before day one started. Whereas some of the other officer programs that you may get selected to go to SEAL training, you may be the one and only candidate from that school or from that officer program and never have worked out with anyone who wanted to go SEALs, never known anyone who was at BUDS, so you don't have all the little secrets and hacks. Um, so the Naval Academy absolutely does prepare you for for going through buds. Yeah, because and, and just the standards of it of the academy itself, right? Like it's it 
it's pushing you to go to another standard as I'm sure SEAL training does as well. It's like taking you to that next level. So, and that's kind of the, what made me think of that, right? Is that going through the academy in itself is, is just bringing you to a whole new standard and then to For sure. roll out of that and straight to buds. I can imagine that. Yeah. In addition. Yeah. To I mean, it's, it's a, it's a crucible, right? In and yeah. of itself, getting getting into the academy, getting through the academy, um, it sets you up physically. It sets you up mentally to go and do whatever. I mean, if you want to be a SEAL, if you want to be a Marine Corps officer, if you want to be a surface warfare officer, an aviator, you're you're going to have gone through some things that are going to prepare you for success. Now, prepare you for success and and actually you're succeeding. Those are two different things, but it it, it sets it sets you up. Uh, to have a greater chance of succeeding. Um, and, and I'm very thankful for it. I'm thankful for having gone. I'm thankful for having gotten into the Naval Academy, gone to the Naval Academy and looking back, um, gone through it with some of the best, best men and women this country has to offer. Like I'm still lifelong friends with many of my classmates and those who are before me and after me. And uh, I mean, much like West Point and Air Force Academy, I hate that you're going to air this <laughs> and other and other uh, academy uh, grads are going to hear this, but um, the, the service academies do an amazing job of preparing um, America's future leaders for combat and then for after their time in the service. So I, and I do give credit to my West Point and, and uh, Air Force Academy and sorry, Coast Guard Academy and Merchant Marine Academy as well. I got to give them credit as well. They're amazing institutions. Yeah, absolutely. And it, they just have a, like I said, a whole, I've, I've met many from all those different schools and they just have a whole, you can see it. They wear it on their sleeve. They've just got a really high standard about themselves. It's, it's embedded in them. And, and, you know, you know, and like I said, being here around the Academy and I know a few, you know, personally that have graduated, they just, they just have a whole, you know, prestige about them as far as how they carry themselves, what they're prepared for mentally. Right. And I guess like the, yeah. the thing about buds and in, in, in seal training is, I read a lot. Is it more psychological than physical in your mind? Looking back on it, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the hands down. I mean, there was there were guys that quit day one that were just physical studs. I mean, could crush anything that you threw at them physically, but you you throw in some physical challenge in conjunction with being cold, in conjunction with being tired your mind starts playing tricks on you pretty quickly and you start convincing yourself that you can't do this. Um, and those of those who get through the, the common thread that I've found, and I'm, I'm certainly no scientist and I've never done like a formal assessment on this because tons of formal uh, studies have been done and they, they have not been able to see a common thread. But what I've seen in my own anecdotal experience is the guys who show up <clears throat> to buds, to become seals, those are the guys who make it. The guys who show up to buds, to show up to buds, those are the guys who don't make it. Like they're, they're the guys who want to, you know, beat their chest and say, hey, I, I went to buds. I went to the hardest training in the world, or at least the U U.S. military. Um, they want to go and tell war stories about their time in hell week and, you know, that's just a stepping stone. If you can see buds as a stepping stone towards the bigger goal of becoming a SEAL, those are the ones who you see on graduation day standing right next to you. Those are the ones who make it. 
not the other ones. That's that's the common thread. And I don't know why we're still doing studies on that, <laughs> but but we are. <laughs> yeah. Um, you reminded me of um, Man's Search for Meaning a little bit. Like it just, it, you yeah. read that, Victor Frank. Like you remind me of Frankel. like, yeah, the destination, like the vision of the destination as a seal, not that event, right? Because he yeah. goes quite into like, that was the difference of survivors and not ones that saw life right. beyond that, not specifics, events and time frames within, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The um what what did you learn about yourself through the process? Man, you got some really good questions. I'm I'm enjoying these. <laughs> should, these are these are you. deeper than so, uh, no 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 this is perfect cuz uh it uh, allows for authentic answers but um these are deeper questions that are what I'm used to getting asked and I appreciate it. Um what I learned about myself is I'm more capable than I than I ever knew than I ever thought I was. Um the the body is more capable than the mind allows it to think it is, right? It's just like you run a marathon. You, you've prob- if you've never run a marathon before, you can run a marathon. Um, and, you know, if, if you're physically able, if you have the legs and everything, uh, you, you can do it. Uh, but a lot of the time your, your mind will convince you otherwise. But when you have no other option than to just keep going, then you can do it. Same thing with SEAL training. Um, I, I found there were a lot of times, in all honesty, that I wanted to quit. I wanted to quit training. I wanted to quit on myself. Uh, but I just kind of convinced myself that that just wasn't an option. It wasn't on the table. And my body just kept going. My body just kept going and kept going. And that, I believe, is a, a great thing to have learned about myself early on because I've applied it throughout my life. Um, and I still apply it, you know, as a father <laughs> when I'm exhausted and, and, uh, you know, I'm running around with three little ones, I, I try the best I can. And my, my mind comes to a point where it's like, you know what, I'm tired. I need to lay down. I need to quit. But guess what? That's not an option. And my, my body keeps going. And, uh, and that's, that's, a, I think important. Um, that's an important lesson to have learned early on. Yeah. Now, and it's really powerful. It's actually having that conversation earlier today and, just that it's 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 that governor switch in your head that's telling you like nope you're done you don't need any more or whatever and you just got to know that's all it is it's just your survival mechanisms or whatever just telling you like you don't need to do this you don't need to go farther you don't need to go harder whatever you know whatever you're telling yourself but it's all it's all mental you know um yeah what when you so when you got out in the the fleet i'll say like what was what was life like after that, so now you're SEAL commander. Now you're on with your career. What kind of? Yeah. Where'd you go from there? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I wasn't the SEAL commander right off the bat. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, young SEAL Lieutenant JG or Ensign, and uh, you know, uh, the the Navy ranks are ridiculous, but Ensign is equivalent to second lieutenant in the other services. And I always thought it would be so cool to be called Ensign until I was called an ensign by a senior enlisted guy. And I, and then I felt that it was like a derogatory term. Like if you can imagine someone saying, what are you going to do now? Ensign. Uh, Ensign's one, right? That's, that's the butter one. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah the yeah. butter bar. Yeah, that's right. Yep. <laughs> so you start, you start almost hating that rank. Um, but yeah, I ended up making it to the seal teams as a, as an ensign put on O2 pretty soon after, cause the training takes a while. And in, in Afghanistan, 
uh, I, my first real deployment, I, I did some little little things here and there overseas, but first real combat deployment was Afghanistan in 2005. Um, and if you've read the the book Lone Survivor, uh, if you know the story about Marcus Luttrell and and Mike Murphy and all those those cats and dogs, amazing men, uh, both the both the seals that we lost on that operation and the the army night stalkers that we lost on that operation so if if you know the story bottom line is we lost three guys on the ground and another 16 in a helicopter that was shot down that helicopter had eight more navy seals and eight army night stalkers on it and uh i was involved in that operation i was involved in the planning for that operation um and that that operation planning the risk that was involved the the events that had happened just prior, we had lost Marines in that same location the, the week prior. I, I raised some concerns about the the operation, and uh, and those concerns basically fell on deaf ears at the at the O five level. Again, now I'm an O two right, raising concerns. Then like you don't know anything. We're we're still pressing on, and uh, we ended up doing that operation. Lost the three on the ground lost the other other guys in the helicopter and i felt a lot of guilt about not pushing harder about my concerns um i felt a lot of guilt for the the loss of my buddies on the ground and in uh in the in the helicopter and basically a lot of guilt for not having done more and that that carried on throughout my career um a lot of it it made me a better seal because I pushed harder when I had concerns. Uh, I pushed harder with my training, with myself and with my guys. It almost made me a tyrant as a leader because I really pushed my guys to their to their breaking point. But they were better seals because of it. Um, anyhow, that that guilt carried with me. I boxed it up, put it down in the basement, and I carried it with me for years. It's just kind of this weight that I was dragging around, and I was. Why am I? Why am I sad? Why am I depressed? Why am I stressed? Why am I anxious? I went and saw counselors, and I told them, "Well, it was this or that," and never really unpacked what I was carrying until uh, until finally a, a, a particular counselor recommended mindfulness and meditation to me, and that's why I got into what I'm in now. Because honestly, I, I pushed back against the guy. God bless him. Uh, he, he raised it and I was, I laughed at him and, uh, and I told him that I had some serious stuff going on and mindfulness and meditation was too woo woo. And it wasn't for me. And he sat me down and he's like, okay, well, here's the science behind it. Here's why it works. Here's the physiology. Here's what's happening in your brain. When you meditate, here's what's happening in your brain. When you live mindfully, here's some very high performing individuals who practice it. I was like, oh, well, if they're doing it, then why not? Why not? I could try it. And I tried it. Um, and it took me a while to get into it, but I tried it for about two months and finally had a breakthrough. I saw my performance, my mental performance enhancing. I saw mental clarity that I hadn't had in a long time. And then I saw that that load that I've been carrying for a while that I hadn't truly processed. I was like, oh, this is this is the pack. I need to, I need to unpack this. And then I was able to go to counseling and talk through some of the stuff that I've been carrying with me for years. And uh, 
now I attribute the the mindfulness side, the meditation to quite literally saving my life because I had some dark moments there where I considered some pretty dark options and um, and the mindfulness and meditation truly saved me. So I may have fast forwarded there quite a bit because uh, I know you had some other questions. No, but no, it, I, think it's, it's I think it's great because it's like it, the questions I have around that, like what were your objections to it? Because now that you're into this, what are some of the yeah. objections? And then maybe yeah. what is the science that as you know it now, you know, in face like, sure. so I guess we are you now, you know, what, what is that? What, right. what, what, what are we objecting <laughs> yeah, to? What don't we know? Well, I mean, in my mind, back then when this guy recommended it to me, I thought, okay, meditation is for hippies, monks, and weirdos. And I don't have anything against the hippies and monks. The weirdos, maybe something. But <laughs> but I just, I was like, okay, I, I don't picture myself as this hippie, a monk, or a weirdo. I, you know, it's just not, it's not for me. I, I envision myself as this masculine guy who can beat my chest and, you know, do a thousand push-ups and whatever, run a million miles. Um, and meditation was not something that I saw. One, I didn't see it falling into my daily routine because we all kind of have our daily routines. I was like, hey, I'm setting this daily routine. I'm not, I don't know where I'm going to find the time to meditate, first of all. And then second of all, it's for weirdos and it's snake oil that you're selling me. I don't, I don't believe in it. And I'll be honest, the third the third kind of objection that I had to it is I have, I have religious beliefs and I felt that, that meditation and mindfulness were of a particular religion. And that, again, this is me being very naive about it, right? I've since learned a ton, but I, I thought that it was a particular religion that was going to come in and supplant my religious beliefs, um, which is ironic because my my religious background is Christian, and the in the Bible it mentions Jesus meditating regularly um, in throughout the Bible. But but yeah, so coming back to my concerns, um, one the the weirdos, hippies, and monks. He showed me some very high performing individuals who who practice it, people who run Fortune five hundred companies, right? Who make it part of their their regular routine. Um, People who are scientists who uh, believe in believe in and know the science behind it, and that that helped me. Okay, okay, it's not just for weirdos, hippies, and monks. It's for everyone. That changed that. Then he showed me that this the science behind it. So what's happening when you meditate? A lot of the time we sit down and we have a million things on our minds. When we meditate, we focus on one thing. We focus on our breath. We focus on a mantra. We focus on a body scan. We're forcing our mind to focus. And when we do that, that allows us to be more focused more regularly. Now, that said, when we sit down to meditate for the first time, a lot of us may sit down for an hour-long meditation and make it 15 seconds in before our mind starts wandering off. And that's that's perfectly okay because our mind is meant to think thoughts, much like our heart is meant to beat. Our mind is meant to think thoughts. So when we start thinking thoughts that are away from our focus, away from our anchor, we just notice that. Notice that your mind just wandered off and bring it back to the anchor, your breath, a body scan, a mantra, whatever. And as you do that over and over and over, that is physiologically rewiring your brain causing new neural pathways to develop that are going to be more focused, more streamlined. 
It's also going to shrink the amygdala. The amygdala is the fight, flight, or freeze part of our brain that's responsible for defending us from threats. Now, the thing is, in this day and age, threats are text messages, threats are emails, threats are social media, threats are traffic, threats are finances, threats are, they're everywhere, but they're not truly life ending threats, right? But our body perceives them in that way. So we're constantly living in this state of defending ourselves in this fight, flight, or freeze state. And we're living in uh, in the red. We're living in the red. We're constantly burned out. So if we're able to shrink that amygdala, we don't want to do away with it completely. We still want to be able to defend ourselves from threats, actual threats, but we don't want to perceive everything as a threat. When you meditate, you physiologically shrink that part of your brain and thicken the lining between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for more rational thought. And that magic, that magic happens in noticing that your mind has wandered off that and, and bringing it back and bringing it back. It's like a mental push-up that you're doing and you're literally rewiring your brain. And when he showed me all that, I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And I did. I tried to jump into an hour-long meditation and I lasted about 15 seconds. And my mind started going down my to-do list and my finances and my relationship and everything else. And I walked out of that hour-long meditation I, I think I may have quit at like 45 minutes and I walked out. I was like pissed off. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was like, well, I'm just not a person who can meditate. So I went back to that counselor a week later and I was like, Hey man, that meditation stuff, it, it may work for the, the super high, highly successful folks that you listed off and the science may be real, but I'm just not one who can meditate. And he's like, well, what did you do? And I told him what I did. And he's like, well, that's like lining up at the beginning of a marathon without ever having run a mile before. That's like getting underneath 350 pounds on the bench press without ever having lifted any weights before. What's going to happen? It's going to be it's going to be ugly. Well, that's exactly what that felt like. That meditation was ugly, and I came out of it angry. So anyway, I went back and I, I downloaded an app, Insight Timer, which I still have on my phone today. Uh, I still use it on occasion, but I downloaded an app and I started with some very short meditations. I started with some simple breath work, nothing too long as far as duration and nothing super in-depth as far as the scope, what it was going to cover. And I came out of that, you know, two, three minute breath work. And I was like, okay, that, that I felt the, I felt better after that. But then I would jump in my car and get cut off what by it, some jerk in John, traffic. What, is, what does felt better mean? Like what, yeah, what were you feeling? Yeah. What, what was this better sure. feeling? Sure. Like I felt calmer. I felt um, just more with it and less, less concerned about, you know, my entire to-do list or everything that's going on in life. I was like, in that moment, I was like, okay, I am in this moment and that's all I want to be in. I want to be in this moment and that's it. And, and I'm sure if you had hooked up all sorts of monitors, my heart rate would have decreased, my respiratory rate would have decreased, my blood pressure would have been better, all the, all the scientific signs of feeling better, quote unquote. But then, you know, get get back into life that comes at you and, and you instantly get back into the red and you get stressed out again. You start thinking, well, this meditation stuff is all well and good, but it, it doesn't, the effects don't last. But I stuck with it and about two months eight weeks or so, eight or nine weeks 
that's when I started seeing the effects lasting longer and longer. And the meditations were easier and easier to do. My mind was easier and easier to settle. Like, and I say settle specifically because a lot of time people are like, doesn't meditation, don't you need to clear your mind completely? No, you don't. You don't need to clear your mind. It, it helps to settle your mind, settle your body, settle your nervous system. And that's, uh, that's, I saw those effects lasting longer and longer to overlap, like overlapping between meditations. And that's after doing some research on it, that's the magic number is about eight or nine weeks. If you do it regularly for about eight or nine weeks, that's when you start to see the long lasting effects of it. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's the, some of the science behind it. You hear a lot in mainstream media, mindfulness, you hear a lot of mindfulness and meditation. And the, and the second is actually more accurate. So mindfulness is not meditation. Meditation is not mindfulness. Meditation is a formal practice. That's when you set aside some time, sit down, lay down, stand, whatever, but you set aside some time to do a formal practice and think about meditate on a specific anchor. That could be your breath. That could be a mantra. That could be the body scan. Again, whatever, whatever's your choice for your anchor. Mindfulness is nothing more than being present in the here and now and paying attention without any judgment to the here and now, what it is you're experiencing physically and emotionally right here, right now, not thinking about what you screwed up yesterday, not thinking about what you got to do later today. Like right now I'm talking with you, Dale, I'm focused on this conversation. I'm focused on nothing else. That's living mindfully and where the two intersect that's mindfulness meditation. You can do a meditation that is focused on your physical sensations or on your emotions in the present moment. And mindfulness, living mindfully, is going to make meditating easier. Meditating is going to make living mindful, mindfully easier. So you're going to be in the moment more regularly if you meditate. You're going to be more present with your friends, your family, your coworkers when you meditate. So there is overlap. One begets the other, uh, but they are not the same thing. So that's a, an important distinction to understand. Hey, guys, Dale here. And I wanted to take a quick break to invite you to join the launch of the Lions Guide community called The Pride. You see, whether it was at work dealing with the demands of the day or maintaining the demands of my life at home, I always seemed to feel like my struggles were unique, like somehow I was the only one struggling to find joy amidst all the weight that I felt I was carrying each day. And you know, what I've come to realize is that we all have our struggles that we're up against and it's pretty demanding. The only way to rise to those demands is to decide and make the change to adopt a growth mindset, to be what I call a high performer. And that's why I started Lion's Guide. I want to help you break through to the next level of you and your ability to not only meet, but exceed those demands on you and in doing so, find your joy again. If you're a growth-minded individual ready to make a change, then I'm here for you. And this is how you get started. I invite you to visit lionsguide.com and sign up to join the Pride. The Pride is the Lions Guide community for growth-minded members like you. Once signed up, you'll get special access to all the free content and resources I'm putting out there. You'll also be invited to join my live online events where I host sessions on personal growth and high performance. You'll also be able to engage with other growth-minded members on our private online group. Also, if you enjoy the podcast as a member, you'll get access not only to all the podcasts, but also the podcasts that have been yet to be released. So get access to all this and more. So break out of that rut 
Break into your next level and join me on lionsguide.com and let's grow together. Go to lionsguide.com and become a member of the pride today. Now back to the show. Yeah, no, and, and thanks for bringing that up because that that is something, right? I think you hear, I think it's used uh, interchangeably, you know, and people are hearing sure. it, and especially people like myself who are just beginners in it, trying to figure it out, trying to understand it. Uh, like I said to you before, like trying to understand if you're even doing it right or, or so on. But um, I really appreciated how you explained even the, the, the benefit of the meditation and, and you made it made very much the analogy like it's almost like working a muscle, you know, that in, yeah. in, I was even thinking like you're kind of working like your ability to control your reactivity muscle like, you know, you're and, and you're using all the, the big science. I didn't go to the academy. So bear with me. I'm still just a crayon eating <laughs> jarhead. But, you know, you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> and when you're saying the, the brain thing. And I was thinking water boy, like the, and there goes my mindfulness. Or whatever he was saying. Uh, but um, when you're talking about the science and the part of your brain, but I was hearing you say like, well, we're training our brains to control those, that reaction like that, you know, yeah. so you can kind of control yourself, yeah. not just react, but kind of be in control, be in control. And that there's the mindfulness piece, right? Yeah. So the meditation's helping you that that's what I'm hearing you. If, and I'm asking, asking them, I'm understanding correctly that the meditation's helping you control your mind. Therefore Absolutely. be more mindful. Yeah. yeah. And you, you brought up Victor Frankl, Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning earlier. And he's, he talks about, I don't remember if it's in that book or if it's just a quote attributed to him, but essentially, and I'm going to bastardize this. So it's my, my rephrasing of this quote, but basically is, is in between a stimulus and your thought, if you could just inject a gap in there, a pause, a millisecond, you can change your life. You can change the way you react, change it from reaction to respond. And the, I work for the, this one company, it's called My Steady Mind, where we talk about the STEA process, S-T-E-A. So stimulus, thought, emotion, action. We see a stimulus, we experience a stimulus that is going to instantly drive a thought. That thought is going to drive an emotion in our body, and that's going to drive an action. But if we can take a pause in between that stimulus and that thought, a lot of the time the thought is going to change. And if that if that thought can change, then the emotion and the action afterwards is going to change. And a lot of the time that action afterwards is going to be more appropriate instead of, you know, cursing at your children or flipping off the, the guy in traffic who cut you off. I mean, you, you just stop for a second. The stimulus was, okay, I got caught. I got cut off in traffic. Let me take a quick breath and think about this. Okay. My next thought is not what a jerk that person is, but maybe that person has something going on in their life. Maybe they're trying to get to the hospital. Maybe they're, maybe they got a kid being born in that car. It just makes, it changes your perception of everything. And if that can change your perception, then that's going to change your actions. A lot, a lot of time, again, those actions are going to be more appropriate. And you're not going to live with as much regret. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, and yeah. it, it, and I think that's so important in leadership, right? Because you know, especially coming out of the military, especially when we're young leaders, like it's just react, 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 bark, bark, bark. Sometimes, I mean, at least where I came from, <laughs> right. that's 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 what we did, man. We barked, man, and it was it was pure reaction and. 
And it took me a long time just from not and even not through mindfulness and meditation, but, you know, just as seeing the results of that type of leadership style, you know, that immediate reaction right. instead of, you know, and, and I think what I attribute to was uh, kind of Stephen Covey's, you know, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Like that was like reading that and really kind of burning that into the way I operated as a leader, what served for that pause, right? So hearing bad news or seeing an employee do something wrong or, or some sort of event, take pay, like whatever, but like seeking first to understand, then to be understood became that pause for me as a leader to not just react, right? So, you know, Johnny's right. late. It, well, instead of like going Sergeant Walls and jumping down Johnny as soon as he walks in at eight oh five, you know, kind of going, "Hey, man, <laughs> is everything okay?" Right? That that was right. that was a transition, and and I think that's why I honor you bringing this all up and, and kind of bring it back to leadership because I think it's really important to be the best leader you can be is to be able to control that. Right? We've all seen the bad, yeah, the bad leaders that just can't control their emotions and and they're just. Yeah, that that dictator leadership, if you will. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. It's uh, it's huge, and it's not, it's not only huge in being able to control your emotions, but again, as you meditate, as you live more mindfully, it also puts you in touch with what may be going on with that person. Right. It, it allows you to see other people as just that people. They have their own stuff going on in their lives, and as a leader you need to understand that you may not need to understand exactly what they have going on, but you need to understand that they have something going on. And you, you hit the nail on the head there. When Johnny shows up late to a formation, Sergeant Walls is, you know, the, the initial response there is I want to bark at him, chew him up. And, and most of the time <laughs> in front of people as the, like, Hey, a lot of, a lot of leaders like, they, as soon as they start barking at somebody, they want to you know, bite their heads off in front of other folks, which was never quite appropriate. Um, but then, Sergeant Walls, if you're if you were practicing mindfulness and meditation, you may see that person and understand they've got their stuff going on. Pull them aside, ask them that question: "Hey, is everything all right?" And then when they say, yeah, everything's all right. I just got drunk last night. Then you bite their head off, <laughs> but you do it in private, right? <laughs> but, but now at least, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, something is going on. So. Yeah. Because I mean, you, you brought up the regret word, right? Like that was it. I think that was a part of learning that lesson as a leadership seeing as a leader, like reacting poorly, biting someone's head off or something that's minuscule, throwing your rank around or your title around, whatever that may be to find out like, oh, well, you know, my wife's, my, my mother-in-law passed away last night or whatever, you know, like, yeah. like you, you get hit with the, like, yeah, you're an a-hole, you know, <laughs> like, you know, just yeah. you, when you do, hopefully when you do that enough, you realize like you're wrong, you know, and you got to slow down and, and just kind of check right. in and control yourself. And like you said, yeah, if there's, if there's something that warrants a rep reprimand, sure. But, but, discover that first. Don't just jump straight there. Right. Like, yeah. Right. Right. And, and, you know, taking it from the other perspective, right. Being the person who has been late to a, to a formation or been late to work or whatever, whatever the violation is. When I've had a leader ask me, Hey, is everything okay? My respect for that leader, goes up infinitely. Whereas when the inverse happens, 
when I show up late and there's a legitimate reason, my mother-in-law died, whatever, and they bark at me first, their first inclination is to bark at me and rip my head off. I, I like tune out from that point forward. I'm like, hey, this, this person is not a true leader. They're toxic. They don't care, right? There, you said dictator leadership. That's what it is. When a leader should be a servant leader, if they're a servant leader, they're not going to bite your head off without asking what's going on first. They're not going to know, or they're going to want to know rather what's going on. And that, that a lot of that can come from being more mindful of your actions, being mindful of that person as a person. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. The, um, back to kind of how you got started a little bit, because I think this is where we can serve a lot of people like for, so for those first few months, as you were getting into it, like what, what was your practice of getting started? Like, and I'm talking was it a daily thing? Was it for five minutes, 20 minutes? I know you mentioned like yeah. the hour was, you know, line up at the marathon, right. you know, after you just bought <laughs> a brand new pair of shoes, but, uh, but right. like what, um, you know, what was it for you to kind of get you started or maybe that you would recommend for someone getting yeah. into meditation? Yeah, sure. Well, what I, what I recommend is, is starting simple and starting short and then <clears throat> increase the frequency of your, your meditations. So, you know, I started day one with like after, after that nightmare of the hour long attempt, uh, I, and I had gone back to the counselor and he kind of showed me what to do. So my next day one, starting with him, uh, with, I started with like some two minute, three minute meditations. And again, I felt good afterwards, quote unquote, less stressed, more in the moment, but that went away pretty quickly. So what I started doing was I started doing that three or four or five times a day, just some short breath work. And so that adds up. And the effects are cumulative. So it's much like, hey, a, a lot of the time you hear people say, I don't have enough time to work out. But then you see them cruising social media all day or, you know, they use their, their breaks throughout the day to go out and do a smoke break or whatever. But if you did, let's say, if you did 15, 20 push-ups after every single Zoom call that you had throughout the day, I mean, a lot of people are on Zoom back to back to back all day, every day. If you did that every day, 15, 20 push-ups, you know, that adds up. Eventually, you're going to get pretty strong. Same thing with a meditation is if you do short meditations throughout the day to start, you start reaping some of the benefits of a longer meditation. So what my, my practice looked like initially was I started doing two or three minutes a day for a while. And I was like, okay, I'm not getting enough out of that. So let me increase the frequency per day. So I ended up doing four or five, six meditations that were just short. And then I was like, okay, now I feel that I can do a, you know, a 10 minute meditation. Okay. I did a 10 minute meditation and I reduced the frequency. So now I was doing two or three 10 minute meditations. And eventually I, I got to where I can do an hour long meditation. No problem. I don't regularly do an hour long meditation even to this day, but I can if I need to. What I, my practice looks like now is I meditate for 15 minutes in the morning and then 15 minutes after lunch. And then if needed, again, I do a five or 10 minute meditation at night before going to bed. Now, the problem with the meditations before going to bed, a lot of the time I'm wasted from the day. I'm, I'm worn out 
And if I sit down to meditate, I'm just going to pass out anyway. Or the flip side, sometimes meditations give me energy and I'll sit down for 10 or 15 minutes, meditate, and I'll come out and be like, oh, I feel refreshed. I don't need to go to sleep, which that's not what I want to have happen before I go to sleep. So some people, it works wonders for their sleep. I'm just uh, personally, it doesn't work well for me. So I I do uh, 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes after lunch. And with that, I get the same cumulative effects of a 30 minute meditation. The, uh, I agree. So as I've been kind of experimenting and finding it in my routine, um, the 15 minutes after lunch, I feel like is a good, like reset. Like you kind of leave the morning behind and you're right. You know, and I guess I want to ask this. So your meditation practice during this time is what, are you just still focusing on your breath or like, you know, so your, your routine meditations now, these two a day, or is it just breath work or, or what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. I shake it up. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like I need it guided and I've, I've got several meditation apps on my phone. I've got, I've got calm. I've got inside timer. Uh, I've got sync tuition, um, 10% happier and, uh, awake. And, you know, I'll, I'll go through those if I feel like I need a guided meditation. Some days I don't want to be guided. Some days I just want to sit in quiet and I bring my, I, I sit down in a chair, you know, you don't have to sit in the lotus position or anything fancy, but whatever works for you. But um, I sit down in a chair with my back straight, not stiff, but straight and my head unsupported. Because if I sit like in a lounging chair at, you know, 5.50 in the morning, same thing's going to happen. I'm going to pass out when I do a meditation. Um, so anyway, I sit and I bring my attention to the physical sensations that I'm experiencing right here, right now to start. So, okay, where's the breath entering my body? Most of the time it's through my nostrils and I can feel that. And it's just a very small area. And if I can focus on that very small area, then everything else kind of fades away into the noise. And then I may expand that. Okay, 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 now I've done some breath work. What am I feeling in my face? What am I feeling in my shoulders, my body? So I'll do a body scan. Um, or maybe I, maybe, I, maybe I just want to listen, listen to what's going on around me. Sometimes it's nothing. And that in and of itself is noticing that there's nothing to be heard. Sometimes that's nice when you've got three kids yelling and screaming all day long and, and you find one moment of silence. You're like, all right, I'm just going to appreciate this moment of nothing. Um, so it varies, but the time is is pretty consistent these days, right around 15 minutes, twice a day. The um, You were mentioned when you need guided or want like, when would you want to be guided in your case? So, so when, when yeah. we go, yeah, I, want, I need a guided meditation today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I haven't really done any like scientific analysis on that, but it's just honestly how, like how I feel, like, do I feel like it, it's work, right? Right. You may be sitting there and if someone looks at you from the outside, they're like, Hey, you're just sitting there, but it is work to guide yourself through a meditation. Um, and sometimes I just feel lazy in all honesty, like I want to be guided instead of putting in my, my, my own work. Now, granted, even when you're guided, you're still doing work. You may be, you're getting told what to do, but it's just like in the gym when a personal trainer tells you, Hey, I need you to lift that, that barbell 25 times. That personal trainer is not lifting that barbell. You are, 
Well, when uh, a meditation teacher guides you through a meditation, they're not doing the meditation. You are. But it, it's just it can be easier when you have someone guide you through it. And there's days that, again, that I feel lazy and I just want to be guided. I want to be I want to be coached through a meditation. And then there's other days that I don't want to listen to anyone and I just want to be by myself and be in the moment. And that's like similar to the gym. And sometimes you don't want a personal trainer there with you. You just want to be, do your own thing. So I guess it's a similar kind of feeling. Yeah, no. Or maybe would would, would another example be like, if you're just kind of like monkey brain to the max, you're like stressed out and now you just don't want to think, put in the work there. So you were talking about being lazy about it, but I I was kind of thinking also, is it just like, you're just at a limit and you just want to go be guided through it rather than put yourself through it. Yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. The, um, when it comes to lying down or sitting up, is there, is one, is there any science behind what you should be doing or shouldn't be doing? Cause I know you mentioned, you know, head support, you fall asleep or whatever, but is there more yeah. to it than that? Like why you would sit up rather than lay down or have a preference? Yeah. I mean, it, it depends on what you're wanting to get out of it, right? A lot of the time, if you're wanting to just relax and get into that state of mind before you go to bed, sometimes laying down is is beneficial uh, because you don't have the pressure points. You have or you have your, your body weight is distributed more evenly across your whole body if you're lying down. And, uh, and you can also bring in more sensory perception. If you're lying down, you can feel the bed or whatever it is you're laying down on. You can feel that under your hands. You can feel it under your legs, feel it under your whole body. Um, and that can help to bring the focus into the meditation. When you're sitting, you have fewer pressure points, but that can also hyper-focus you on one pers- specific area. Like I just sat up more straight as I said that, right? Because I'm focusing on my pressure point. My, my sit bones are on this chair and I can feel that. My feet are planted on the ground and I can feel that. But everything between my feet and my sit bones, there's no, there's nothing there. So I, I don't I don't necessarily feel that unless I like tense up my calves and my shins, then I can feel that. Um, so it really, I think it gets down to what it is you want out of the meditation. You can do a walking meditation, like pick 10 feet, like 10 linear feet that you can walk and walk that as slowly as you can. And pay attention to how your feet hit the ground, where your feet hit the ground. Is it on your heel, your toes? How that energy is transferred from your foot into your shin, your calves, into your knees. And paying attention to all that and walk those 10 feet. Turn around and do it again. Do that for 10, 15 minutes. And you'll be way more aware of your body in that moment. But as far as the the science behind a particular position... I haven't, I haven't seen any, that's not to say that there's not some, uh, but I ha- haven't personally seen some. Um, I have experienced sitting in the lotus position, some extreme pain because <laughs> just because I'm not as flexible as I used to be. And, you know, the, the, the seals have a way of doing that to your body is reducing flexibility, but that even that extreme pain during the meditation, I sat with it and I sat with it. And I sat with it and eventually I was on the other side of that pain and I, I got through it. And, and that in and of itself is a valuable lesson that you can bring into life. It's like, Hey, no matter what you're going through, you're going to get to the other side of it. And that's, that's, I think some important reason to sometimes sit in a less comfortable position 
um, because it does bring pain into your body. And that pain, getting through that pain, getting to the other side of pain is an analogy for life. So for that, for that reason, sometimes I, I do recommend setting in an uncomfortable position. Yeah, no, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. The, the other thing, you know, I wanted to touch on with you today is like, so I saw maybe it was LinkedIn or somewhere as you posted about, like you went on some sort of psychedelic excursion or something like what, yeah. what was that? What was, yeah. Tell me about it. What, what yeah. were you doing here? <laughs> I did that with a, I, I did that with a, a good bunch of friends. Um, it actually started with a, a buddy of mine who's a former army ranger and former McKinsey consultant uh, termed psychedelic, um, I don't want to say expert because he probably won't claim to be an expert, but psych- psychedelic advocate. And, you know, if you had spoken to me about two years ago about doing anything with psychedelics, I, I would have thought you were out of your mind. And I would have thought that, um, you know, I, I would have been like, okay, that person's a drug head. Don't talk to them anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm a kid. I, I think we're probably right around the same age, Dale, you know, a kid of the, uh, like late 80s, early 90s, the war on drugs and Nancy Reagan and their children, right? And the uh, commercial um, with the egg, right? Like yeah, the, this yeah is exactly. Brain, this, this is your brain, brain on drugs. drugs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right, that, exactly. And I I certainly believe that there are certain uh, drugs that still do those types of things to you. But psychedelics, my, my mind has been open to that. I've read two kind of mind-changing books uh, one called Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler, and the other one is How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. And that one, that latter one is kind of seen as the the Bible, quote unquote, of the what's becoming known as the psychedelic renaissance. But anyhow, the, uh, the retreat started with a buddy of mine, Neil Markey, former ranger, former McKinsey consultant. He reached out. He's like, hey, are you guys interested in, in doing any type of psychedelic retreat? Because I started reading up on it. And what it does to veterans, for veterans who have experienced traumatic experiences, um, who suffer with anxiety, who suffer with depression. And so I was a lot more open to it than I used to be. And he came to me. I was like, yeah, let's let's look at this. And then Will, my co-host on the Men Talking Mindfulness podcast, who is not military at all, I reached out to Will. And I was like, hey, let's let's see if we can do this together. So Will and I traveled to Costa Rica uh, we were at the Imaloa Institute, which is a beautiful spot in Costa Rica. I mean, you land um, in your in your international flight, you get on a personal charter flight, and you fly out into the jungle. I mean, you land you're landing right above the canopies, and then you then uh, you take a car up into the mountains, and beautiful spot away from everything. And so, one, it was a time to focus on just being turn off social media for a week. Uh, turned off technology for a week. I mean, besides just checking in with my family. And then we did a, a lot of the retreat was meditation, hour long meditations every morning after the hour long meditations, you know, eating a beautifully prepared meal and then, uh, and then doing breath work on top of the meditation. And then for two of the evenings that we were there, we were there five nights uh, for two of the evenings we did um, psilocybin which psilocybin is the what's derived from the magic mushrooms. Again, if someone had told me that I was going to be doing magic mushrooms on a retreat in the middle of Costa Rica uh, two years ago, I would, have, I would have said you were insane. But you go in to this uh, psychedelic ceremony and you have an intention. You, what, what is it you want to come out of this with? 
Um, and my initial one was I wanted some type of freedom, some type of peace and calm, which I've definitely found a great level of with mindfulness and meditation, but I just wanted to kind of bump it up to the next level. And the, the experience lasts about six or seven hours, maybe a little bit longer. And I, you lay down on these beds with, you know, blackout, uh, eye shades and there's beautiful music playing and, and it was a lot like you kind of see in the movies you kind of have these visions nothing that i could identify but it's and a sense of euphoria and i was like okay yeah this is this is kind of what i expected and then i started having like anger and frustration and it i almost felt like i was feeling multiple experiences simultaneously this beautiful euphoria but anger and then i i I felt as though I was basically this water that was butting up against this dam. And this is just how I felt, literally felt this, right? And um, and then I broke through the dam. And on the other side of the dam was that peace and fulfillment that I had been searching for, uh, for for a while. Again, I found a good piece of it through mindfulness and meditation. Uh, but this the, just helped to solidify that. And it helped to solidify that what I'm doing with the mind, mindfulness and meditation is the right thing. And then the second journey that we went on, second uh, ceremony, um, the the intention that I went in with was forgiveness. I want forgiveness. As far as for what, I didn't know. I just felt like I had this deep need to be forgiven for things I'd done, things I hadn't done, things I'd been a part of. And... Uh, and about halfway through that ceremony, I felt like a blanket was put on me. And I popped up my eye things. I was like, okay, there's nobody there putting a blanket on me. I'm, I'm just feeling that. And I felt almost as though that blanket was a blanket of forgiveness. And I know that sounds super hippy dippy. So the, for those of you who are listening, just give it a give it a <laughs> give it a try sometime when you get a chance. Uh, there's there's more to psychedelics than you know Woodstock and Burning Man. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not against Burning Man ceremony or the, the, the event, but a lot of people have this perception that psychedelics is again, much like my perception was for mindfulness and meditation, that it's just for hippies and weirdos, but there's a lot of learning that you can do about yourself in a psychedelic experience, a lot of, uh, reconnecting in your brain again, physiologically, some of the neural pathways that may have died, um, some of the memories that may have faded can be brought up. And that's where it can get a little bit dangerous is that you may have stashed these memories away intentionally to never be brought up again. But they have therapists there, psychotherapists there th as part of the ceremony. And, uh, you know, if you do experience that, uh, there's somebody there to kind of coach you through it and then talk to about talk to it, talk about it later with. So, uh, yes. Yeah, Definitely not where I expected to find myself, uh, but I'm incredibly um, happy that I took that experience and it most likely won't be my last. Yeah. It, uh, so psilocybin, the only, only thing that you went through with that? Yes. Yeah. So, yep. Psilocybin was uh, this, this retreat was psilocybin exclusive. Um, I mean, I've, I, I know a lot of veterans who've done ayahuasca, uh, ibogaine, 5-MeO-DMT, uh, 
you know, you kind of name them. There's different retreats that do different things. Some retreats do a whole bunch of different things at uh, one particular retreat. Um, and people have come away with very spiritual experiences from them. Uh, but yes, this one was psilocybin. We started with uh, 2.2 grams, which is like a, a, a kind of a regular dose. And then we, the, the second ceremony, we, we, we upped it to about five grams. Um, and some people did a little bit higher than that, but, um, yeah, now, now as I'm listening to myself, I'm like, man, I do sound kind of like a hippie, but, <laughs> but it was, it was, it was a uh, spiritual and life-changing man. Uh, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things that we're just like mindfulness and meditation. We're hearing a lot more of it today. I think just this, the, the one, you know, there's good and bads obviously, but the goods about the information age is that we're, we're cutting through what is it, whatever it is, whether it's propaganda or commercialization, trying to push some of the stuff down in a way, whatever, whatever, yeah. you know, whatever your conspiracy theory mind tells you, like why, why we've been kept from these things, you know, but right. I, the more I've seen, and that's kind of why I love conversations like this with you today is like kind of learning more about the ability to heal ourselves, right? Because obviously there's a, there is a market in commerce around, you know, medicine and right yeah how much have we been sold on and sold out of that is within our own capabilities which you know again i, I i'm thankful that a lot of this is coming up and again but you gotta you gotta be objective you gotta read into it make your own mind up that's i think that's the biggest thing it's like you know figuring out what what you actually think and do the research and do what do what works for you um you know yeah yeah, absolutely. On both sides, right? Uh, I mean, yeah. on, on the on the pharmaceuticals and uh, the other the plant medicine, which is like the, the hippie term for psychedelics, <laughs> plant medicine. But I, I do I do believe it. I mean, I do believe that the uh, the medicinal purposes of this plant medicine is actually probably uh, more powerful at times than than what we get in psychedelics, or sorry, in uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, and but but there's there's a time and place for certain pharmaceuticals. I don't believe I'm not one who's like the pharmaceutical industry is evil. Um, there's definitely a time and place for certain pharmaceuticals, but I do believe that certain pharmaceuticals, specifically SSRIs, antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds are over prescribed and they're too easily given and too easily taken. Um, uh, yeah, so that's well, my, that, that my market is that. incentivized, right? You know, it's sure it's it's incentivized, and you got to know that. You, like, you got to know. And again, I don't say this as any opposition or anything either, right? But we've got to know, like, because I'm a big believer, and we've got to lead ourselves, right? You know, so that means we can't just fall at the mercy of what people are telling us. So, like, we got to be a leader. We got to be objective. We need to know enough to make informed right. decisions. And and you got to know. Like we're surrounded by commercialization and there's incentives when a doctor's prescribing you something. There's there's some perverse incentives to be aware of. Am I saying that you're being, you know, sold for the sake of being sold always? No. But you gotta know right. um what you're getting and why. And you gotta ask these questions. And I think and I say all that just that that's a lesson I've had to learn and and becoming an adult, frankly, it was to go like, Hey, look, I'm not in Mayberry anymore. And you know, the town <laughs> doctor's just there because he's the smartest guy in town can fix us. Right. Like, no, he's running right. a business, you know, and, and there's, there's profits to be gained by in even surgeries and things like that. So you surgeries. really got to be careful, yeah. um, to know that, you know, that, that doctor, that hospital, that, that prescription there, 
there's profits behind it. So there's, there's incentives, oh, yeah. you know, so you gotta, be, you no gotta doubt. be aware, you know, and I think that's the, again, right. back to bring it back around. That, that's the benefit of the age that we live in today, that we can go get whatever info we want in, in, but still make your own informed decision. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's also, there's a lot of bad information out there. There's a lot of good information. So, you know, not only, not only do you make an informed decision about pharmaceuticals, surgery or anything, but also make an informed decision about where you're getting the information. I mean, uh, my, my wife works in the, in the healthcare industry. She's an orthopedic PA physician assistant. And, uh, she will tell me that a lot of people will come to her with aches and pains and they say, well, this is what I found on Google. Well, when you go on a Google, what pops up? I mean, it could be somebody's personal blog complaining about that same situation and they have no training whatsoever. So take a grain, take what you find with a grain of salt and make sure you're vetting the source before you just start assuming that you know everything. But yes, 100% do your research. Yeah. Yeah, know the source, one hundred percent, man. So, so what are you yeah. what are you working on now? What's next for you? Yeah, so the Men Talk Mindfulness podcast uh, is is going to continue to go, and Will and I are working on right now compiling some of our our episodes, our best episodes, into a series of books. That's uh, one of the plans, and then I'm going to continue doing my keynote speaking speaking engagements on leadership, on developing high performing leaders and high performing teams. And then I work with My Steady Mind that I mentioned before and Movement RX that's uh, teamed up with Teresa Larson, a former Marine, or sorry, a Marine veteran. There's no, no such thing as a former Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine. Um, yeah, so she's a doctor of physical therapy now, and we do mindfulness and movement workshops where we teach the mind and body connection and how important the body is to healing the mind and vice versa. So those are some of the things I'm working on. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, how do people find you online, get more info and find a podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can find me. I've got my my website. It's just johnmccaskill.com, J-O-N mccaskill.com. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, if you search for that same name and you find the uh, former Navy SEAL commander teaching mindfulness and meditation with that name. That's me. So <laughs> that's the best way to find me. <laughs> Yeah, man. No, th this has been great. I, I've learned a lot, man. I, I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, and I, yeah, I want to pick your brain in some other format about the leadership side of this. I, I don't have didn't have enough quite time to get into it today. But, you know, I, I want to jump into that with you as well, because I, I mean, seeing what you're talking about there, I'm really passionate about that, about that side of things as well, man. So I'd love to pick pick back up on this. Awesome. Too. Hey, uh, maybe another episode, man. I'd be happy to come on. So <laughs> definitely. Pleasure, definitely. Dale. Thanks for having me, man. No, thank you. It's been great. I think this is going to bring a lot of value to those uh, interested. So uh, guys, get out there, check John out online, check out his podcast. And I uh, hope this uh, serves you. Like I say, I, I learned a lot here, so I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah.